Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners, Molly here. I'm so excited. Clarissa and I got the opportunity to sit down with Dr. David Katz. So Dr. David Katz is a specialist in internal medicine, preventative medicine, public health, and lifestyle medicine with expertise in nutrition. The recipient of numerous awards for teaching, writing, and contributions to public health, Dr. Katz was a 2019 James Beard Foundation Award nominee in health journalism, has been a widely supported nominee for the position of U.S. Surgeon General, and has received three honorary doctorates. He is a 2023 recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Doctors World Gala. He holds multiple U.S. patents, has over 200 peer-reviewed publications, has published many hundreds of online and newspaper columns, and has authored and co-authored 19 books to date, including multiple editions of leading textbooks in nutrition, preventative medicine, and epidemiology. His most recent book for a general audience, How to Eat, co-authored with Mark Bittman, was a 2021 IACP Awards finalist. His career-long focus has been the translation of science into action for the addition of years to life and life to years and on the confluence of human and planetary health. In this episode, Dr. Katz explains how addiction is possible and why it exists. We discuss how food could fit into meeting criteria for addiction. Dr. Katz shares his opinion on labeling food addiction and obesity as diseases. We discuss culinary medicine and taste bud rehab. Dr. Katz explains why emphasis on whole foods remains a steady recommendation despite new fad diets. We get some of Dr. Katz's book recommendations, and he answers our signature question. We are so excited to welcome you, Dr. Katz. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Dr. Katz. I was really excited to get to talk to you on the Kick Sugar Summit, and I was even more excited when you agreed to be on the Food Junkies podcast. And so we're just going to jump right in. And one of the things that you've written in the past really stood out to me. You said food is on the very short list of reasons addiction is physiologically possible. Food and sex are why addiction exists. Can you walk us through that? Sure. And, and thanks for the kind intro, Molly. Good to be with you and, and you, Clarissa. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a first principles kind of thinker. Uh, I like to know why things are the way they are. And I like to look for commonalities among sets of problems and remedies. We're much more efficient when we can solve a whole suite of problems with essentially the common denominator. So why is addiction a thing? Why is homo sapiens capable of becoming addicted? And for that matter, why is addiction conserved across many species? You can sometimes have strange physiologic anomalies that are a result of evolution. You know, natural selection is a is a phenomenal engineer, but it's a random engineer. It just works with what it has. So you get constructions like our eyeballs, for example, our retina is backwards because it had what it had and it did what it could do with it. But when things are conserved across many, many species, it's generally an indication that you're near biological bedrock. You're dealing with something that is fundamentally important. And many species can become addicted to drugs. Sadly, 
you know, the ethics of this are perhaps questionable in looking through the modern lens, but this has been studied in many laboratory animals, including non-human primates. So why is addiction possible? Well, the answer is it's a reward system built into the human nervous system and the nervous systems of many other species that basically provides positive reinforcement for critically important behaviors. If you do this thing, you should feel really, really good because it will favor either A, your survival, or B, the projection of your immortal genes into the next generation and consequently their survival. And here I'm channeling Richard Dawkins, the selfish gene, that whole theory. But you know, essentially, our genes are the one part of us that's truly immortal. We pass them on to successive generations. And in some sense, they're kind of driving the show. So it's either survival of us as individuals that's favored by these reward mechanisms or survival of our lineage, if you will. And the reinforcement is very strong. It's, it's basically powerful pleasure, powerful pleasure for eating something delicious, powerful pleasure for mating. And the converse, if these behaviors are omitted, essentially we start to become very frustrated by the omission of these things. We, we get hungry, we may crave certain things, we may crave sweet, we may crave salt. We may have these deep-seated cravings. We may crave variety. We're eating the same thing over and over again, and we want something else. We really get fed up. But all of this has to do with survival. So you could argue that the foundation for the possibility of addiction laid in the, the nervous system is built on a bedrock of survival, and it is closely linked to rewards for getting through the day, and food is a huge part of that. And, you know, there are other elements there, too, uh, relative comfort in the environment, obviously having breathable air and so forth. But, you know, th these very compelling urges and a reward for a satisfactory deep breath, a, a, a draught of water when you're really thirsty, food when you're really hungry, and the obvious rewards associated with mating. And these are co-opted by a host of other drugs, and they happen to be addictive because they're able to hijack these systems. But these systems weren't built for heroin or morphine or Dilaudid or Oxycontin or any of those things. They, they just either happened or were cleverly designed to co-opt these systems that were laid to support survival. Um, that's what it's all about. And so when you look at it through that lens, and that's the view from altitude, of course, food is going to be on the short list of things that is unsurprisingly addictive in its potential because it's directly related to the reason this system exists in our physiology in the first place. Yeah. So if I'm understanding correctly, the food itself initially, right, like 10,000, 12,000 years back, the beginning of time of man wasn't necessarily addictive, but that we have the reward center that would say, oh, you did a thing that meant survival. Let's double down on the reward for that. So it's like almost like Pavlov's dog, right? Like do a thing, ring a bell, salivate, get the thing, whatever it might be. And that is what ensured that we continued on as a species. Am I understanding that correctly? Well, first let, let, let's correct the timeline. So, okay. you know, basically the homo lineage goes back a couple million years. We diverged okay. from chimpanzees about 6 million years ago from gorillas about 20 million years ago. And these foundations in physiology go back much, much further than that because they're, as I said, they're conserved across many species, okay. certainly most mammals, probably many amphibians and reptiles. So we're talking about 
potentially hundreds of millions of years. Okay. These systems have been in place. So they're that important. And yes. that's really what, I mean, essentially, if you look to evolutionary biology as, as the master engineer of all things, it's a good place to go to ask, how important is this? Did this show up episodically in biology or is it everywhere? The stuff that's everywhere, enormously important. So yeah, you could argue, okay, it wasn't really addiction. It was just reward because mm-hmm. there wasn't really a risk of getting too much of the good stuff. Right. I mean, you, you were un, unlikely in, in a world that was sparsely populated to mate excessively. There were too few homo sapiens, not too many. So mating excessively unlikely to be a problem. You were unlikely to eat too much sugar, as rewarding as it was, because there wasn't much of it to find. You had to wrestle it from bees in the form of honey or you had to eat wild fruits, which, by the way, are, are much less concentrated in native sugar than domesticated fruits. We, we made our produce sweeter on purpose. So you weren't going to overeat sugar. You were very unlikely to overeat salt because it's pretty hard to find on land, actually. And in fact, it's probable that our our fundamental need for sodium derives from our aquatic origins. You go back far enough, the tree of life, and you're talking about marine animals. And of course, sodium is abundant in the sea, but it's rare on land. and, And most animals will seek out salt either in the soil or the salt lick, given that opportunity, because it's hard to find. So essentially, we have these deep-seated reward mechanisms for stuff that is challenging to get, challenging potentially to find a mate, challenging to find enough quick metabolizable energy in the form of sugar, simple carbohydrate in a world of only native wild plants, challenging to find enough salt. So deep reward mechanisms. And in a sense, you could say this wasn't really about addiction at all until you coupled the reward mechanism with abundance. When the stuff that we natively crave became abundantly available, then the reward mechanisms backfired and were corrupted into addiction. Yes. Okay. Thank you. That's what I wanted to just clarify because my line of thinking was like, you know, so addiction would have meant, you know, quote unquote addiction, you know, our audience can't see us, but that it would have meant survival. Like in a way it was almost like it was a positive trait to have because we would have been the ones that the rest of the tribe was like, follow that girl. She's going to go find, like, she's not going to let up till she finds the fruit, the honey, the whatever. It's it's an interesting point. So, so first of all, I mean, everyone should understand that, that addiction is a problem, but maybe it's comforting to know we are all vulnerable to it to one degree or another. Right. And, and as with all things about humans, we're a lot alike and a little bit different. So some of us are more vulnerable than others, obviously. And but but we should understand, you know, there, but for the grace of happenstance go I. We're all in this together. We all have these same vulnerabilities. I, you know, I, I think that's a that's a comforting thing. The other thing is, you know, if you're suffering from a burden, understanding why do I have this? Where did this come from? Why me? Oh, woe is me. I mean, we all feel those things too. Understanding that the vulnerability to addiction is deep rooted in human physiology also may be a source of comfort. This is not my fault. I'm not a bad person. I didn't do this to myself. This, this, you know, this is this is part of my hard wiring. And you know, I got into some bad circumstance that that took advantage of that vulnerability. So I think understanding that's important. But yeah, the, the real problems of addiction arise when the thing that we natively crave reinforces itself because it's it's constantly available. But you know, you, you said something interesting there, Molly. You talked about following that that girl who says, you know, come on, I, I really have got to have some sugar today. Follow me. Let's let's find some wild fruit. Let's let's wrestle the honey from the bees. Actually, to some extent, those people helped our tribe survive. And by tribe, I, I really mean the whole species, because 
um, I, you, you could come up with a fantasy. Let, let's say there's some particular clan of, of early humans who lived in a place where, I don't know, there was something available to eat and it was abundantly available and it didn't move. Maybe they lived you know, right next to a, a herd of antelope. They could eat antelope every day. Well, that would be great as a source of protein and, and certain other key nutrients, but it wouldn't provide many of the other critical nutrients that human physiology requires. Wouldn't require, wouldn't provide key antioxidants. It wouldn't provide key minerals and, and vitamins. We'd also come, among other things, to scurvy. So you, you could just imagine if some of us had a physiology that says, as long as I eat something, I'm fine with it, and I can eat it every day for the rest of my life. And others of us had a physiology where we had a different gene, basically, that said, no, no, I want something else. I'm, I'm fed up, literally and figuratively, with antelope. I could not eat another antelope steak. I need something else. Well, actually, those people would be much more likely to survive. That motivation to go out and seek something else would ensure that they acquired a diverse enough diet to meet all of their physiological requirements. And consequently, they would survive and others, you know, sitting there eating more antelope would not. They'd succumb to scurvy and, and, and other scourges related to nutrient deficiencies. And the person who survives is a much better ancestor than the person who doesn't survive, right? We, we basically need people to survive long enough to make babies to be decent ancestors. So those people pass on their genes. And all of us here today, privileged to have podcast conversations, <laughs> are the beneficiaries of survivors. Uh, if our ancestors weren't good at surviving, they wouldn't be ancestors and we wouldn't be here. So here we are, thanks to them. And among the traits that helped them survive was that urge to seek out dietary variety, which, by the way, is one of the great vulnerabilities in modern living because we have excessive variety, not just of foods, but engineered into foods. I'm sure we'll get into that. But but that that girl who said, I'm tired of eating this. I want something else. Follow me. She was a good ancestor. She was a survivor. And, and again, some comfort to people struggling with addictions of, of any kind to understand as with so many things, there is actually good mixed in with the bad. There, you know, there's sort of circumstance is the difference between a native inclination serving good or serving ill. And of course, addiction serves ill, but the, the tendency toward it, the drive toward it, it's not bad and it's not about character. It's about biology and survival. Yeah, I love that you said that it's so compassionate towards those who do struggle with addiction, which often, you know, they present so well in many other aspects of their life, except this one area where they do tend to struggle. I am wondering if you can comment a little, you informally defined addiction as like the need for the thing, the symptoms of withdrawal from the thing, intolerance to the thing. And so when we're speaking about food specifically, how does this work? Is it all food? Is it specific foods? Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Sure, sure, Clisha. And and to be clear, this is not my definition. We we have diagnostic manual definitions of addiction, and you know there there are formal ICD codes, so essentially codes to get reimbursed for treating addiction, and and so they're defining parameters for addiction, and those three are key. You need the fix. So there's this, this urge, craving, and, and sometimes it's worse than that because sometimes it's a desperation. There is a, a risk of withdrawal if you don't get it. So usually the, the, there's some sort of a syndrome associated with not getting the fix. And there's tolerance, which is the more you get, the more you need. 
Now, you know, in some sense, we could, I suppose, trivialize the whole concept of addiction and say oxygen is something we're addicted to because we must, we crave it, we withdraw if we don't get it, and, you know, we, we need a serve. But there's no real tolerance there. Similarly, with food in general, we have to eat, right? I mean, starvation is an unpleasant experience. We could call that a withdrawal syndrome. I, I think that it, you know, broadens the definition too far. If we stick with those three simple concepts, the one that really helps differentiate, I think, is tolerance. So the more you get of something, the more you, it, it's not true that the more you eat, the more food you need. You know, if you eat to fullness today, you don't need more food to feel full tomorrow. You, you need the same amount. Foods that reinforce themselves, however, are playing to these deep-rooted native cravings from Paleolithic times. So sugar clearly is addictive in that sense. And, and in fact, as is so often the case, we coin expressions in the vernacular that make sort of acute, veiled reference to something of profound importance. So we talk about a sweet tooth. Everybody knows that expression, oh, I have a sweet tooth. Well, what are you really saying? I crave sweet things. And it's not as if if I eat a sweet thing today, I'm going to stop craving them tomorrow. I have a sweet tooth. I, I always crave sweet things. And what people don't tend to realize is the more you feed a sweet tooth, the more likely it is to grow into a sweet fang that basically hangs over your whole life and takes control of your diet because there's tolerance. The more sugar you get, the more you need to feel satisfied. That's, that's very well demonstrated at the level of individuals. It's very well demonstrated in studies. And frankly, it's very well demonstrated all around us because compared to most of the world, the entire American food supply is soaking in absurd amounts of sugar. It would be sickeningly sweet for much of the world. The same is true for salt. It is self-reinforcing. The more sodium you get, the more you tend to crave. It's probably true of many artificial flavorants that are designed specifically for that purpose. It may be true for spiciness, capsaicin. Um, the more you get, the more you need to feel that stimulus because you actually downregulate the substance P cells that respond to capsaicin if you expose them all the time. I don't want to. I don't want to make this too recondite. So you know, just so that everybody can understand, the basic mechanisms here are that you've got some sort of a chemical receptor that processes the interaction, and then it delivers a message to your brain, and your brain interprets that message. Often, those receptors have a certain level of sensitivity to the thing, and the thing might be sugar, or the thing might be salt, or the thing might be spicy, or the thing might be umami, or the thing might be savory. And the more you expose those receptors, the more they get blasé about it. You, you could almost make the simple case, again, borrowing from the vernacular, familiarity breeds contempt. If you make these receptors that are supposed to be sensitive to sugar, soak in sugar all day, every day, they basically say, okay, I don't need to let the brain know we're eating sugar. We're always eating sugar. They kind of slumber off and ultimately lapse into something resembling a coma. So you develop a relative resistance to the sensory response to sweet and to salty and to savory and to umami and whatever else. And what, what has to happen then is for you to get that jolt, to feel satisfied, you now need twice as much and three times as much and four times as much. That's tolerance. I think when we talk about food addiction, we should limit it to discussions of those elements in the food supply that are associated with that response. Because otherwise, you know, we could argue being hungry is a withdrawal syndrome. And, and I think that that's not a useful definition of addiction. So in thinking about kind of like where we started with this, you know, as far as, you know, how addiction can even be a possible thing for us as human beings or any species that is you know, capable of developing that kind of phenomenon, I guess. And then thinking about how food fits with this, 
Um, you know, you have also written about opposing labeling food addiction as a disease because that assigns blame to the the normal workings of the human body and rather rather than where it belongs, which I think you've been pretty clear about, um, you know, in interviews, in writings that, you know, it's more like political, it's more like public policy, this food supply that's being willfully engineered to exploit us and those adaptations in our brain. And you also feel similarly about it, about calling obesity as a disease as well. And I was wondering if we could have a bit of a conversation because I, I think I'm starting to wrap my brain around a little bit where you're coming from. And I, I would love to just kind of hear you flesh that out for us. Thank you, Molly. And it, it's, a, it's an area I love to discuss because you know, I wind up at times being controversial without at all meaning to be. I, you know, I'm really just I, I, I'm reacting to what I see in the world and and, you know, trying to direct solutions to the source of the problem. That's that's where remedies are best directed. Right. I mean, it, it, I'm a physician. I took care of patients for 30 years. You know, otherwise it would be like putting a Band-Aid over a festering abscess and say, I'm not going to treat the infection. I'm not going to address the real problem here. I'm just going to cover it up. Well, you know, I mean, if you call obesity a disease and blame the individual, you get the kind of solution we're starting to see happen right now, where big food gets carte blanche. They have a license to keep manufacturing willfully addictive junk food, hyper palatable, ultra processed food, causing people to overeat on purpose. Let's make no mistake. This has been well described and we can dive deeper into this if you like. And instead of doing anything about that through policy, regulation, litigation, legislation, any of the usual remedies. No, 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 it's fine. Big food can keep designing willfully engineered, addictive, hyperpalatable, ultra-processed frankenfood, no problem at all, and we'll just treat everybody with Ozempic. And you know, now we'll, we'll have more drugs to choose from. So big food can laugh about this all the way to the bank, making everybody addictive, obese, diabetic, hypertensive, et cetera. And big pharma can laugh about all the way back saying, hey, Basically, they're making a fortune causing the problem. We're going to make a fortune treating the problem. We don't want any of this to go away. This is fantastic. Well, who loses? Well, the patient in the middle. The patient in the middle who has the problem they don't need to have in the first place. If food were nourishing, you wouldn't have this problem in the first place. And you'd feel better and have more vitality. You wouldn't need the drug, which is going to cost you a fortune, force you to get injections for the rest of your life. Um, if you're not insured, good luck accessing this, right? I mean, it's not going to bankrupt the country, which disease care expenditure threatens to do an on and goes. So, you know, again, if if the storage of surplus calories as an energy reserve were abnormal, we could call it a disease. It's not abnormal. It, you know, it would be like calling drowning a disease. Drowning is not abnormal. Human beings are not fish. We're not designed to be underwater for extended periods of time. And if we are, we have a problem, but the problem is being underwater. It's not that your body's broken. It's not like you should take a drug and then you can stay underwater for a long time or have surgery to implant gills and then you'll be fine. Your problem is you needed a gill surgery. You didn't have gill surgery. You're diseased. I mean, it's just, it's wrong-minded. There are normal functioning aspects of the human body that should be respected. And then we should ask, well, you know, when, when those normal functions of the human body wind up being corrupted by an environment and turned against us, what went wrong and how do we fix it? Drowning is a great example because there we get it right. We don't just wait for people to drown and resuscitate them all. We put lifeguards at the beach. We put fences around pools. We teach people to swim. We urge all parents to be vigilant with young children anywhere near water. We put signs up at the beach that say, Riptide, don't come in today. All that stuff is prevention. And the emphasis is there. And then, because no matter how hard we try to prevent bad things from happening, they sometimes happen anyway. When someone does drown in spite of all that, 
they get rescued and resuscitated to the very best of our ability. Well, that's how it should be with obesity. And frankly, that's how it should be with food addiction. So the problem with calling food addiction a disease is it assigns the blame to the human body, not to big food, not to the food manufacturer, not to those who are exploiting this vulnerability on purpose. And we could think of several analogies. Imagine if we called air pollution, air pollution disease. So no remedy focused at decreasing pollutants in the air, just pills for people to take to minimize the coughing, the phlegm, the shortness of breath, right? You could argue to some extent we do that already. And imagine if, if we, we talked about, I don't know, smoking addiction disease. So yes, we know that, that tobacco causes diseases. It causes emphysema, COPD, lung cancer, and so on. But imagine if addiction to tobacco itself were the disease. And so no blame were assigned to big tobacco. You can keep making these addictive products. It's a disease in the person who gets addicted. So keep smoking and take this pill to mitigate the addictive properties of nicotine, even though it's willfully addictive and designed very cleverly by engineers who got paid a bonus to make these products as addictive as they could possibly be. So I think the labels matter because the labels essentially direct the resources of our entire culture. If something's a disease, the expectation is physicians and surgeons will respond. Big pharma will, will step in to rescue us. And we don't need to treat the source. We don't treat the source of diseases. We wait till people get sick and then we treat the sick. So you're sick. So you have smoking addiction disease. We're not going to do anything about tobacco in the world. We're just going to wait till you have smoking addiction disease and then figure out what pills to give you. So you can smoke and take pills. Right? We don't do that. And I think we're very much at risk of doing that with food addiction because these are not accidental elements in the food supply. As I've stated several times, they are engineered on purpose by scientists using the best available technology like functional MRI machines who are offered a bonus in pay if they can design foods people can't stop eating till their arm gets tired from lifting it to their mouths. And then we call it a disease in the individual who is at the receiving end of all of that. And what? Here are pills to take to, to mitigate these effects. It, it's a mistake. It's not a disease. It's a disease of the body politic. It's a social disease, if you will. Now, can you wind up with pathology too? Sure. I mean, you know, people who are addicted to willfully addictive food who succumb to obesity and then succumb to type 2 diabetes, ultimately they have a disease too. And just to close out this diatribe, I am a physician and I took care of patients for 30 years. None of this, none of this is an argument against the most dedicated, most complete, most compassionate care we can offer the individual too just not instead of. So if you're at the, the tail end of all of that and you're addicted to food because people want you to be, because they're making a profit from you being addicted to food and you become obese and you succumb to type 2 diabetes, should, should your type 2 diabetes be treated to the very best of our ability? Hell yeah, absolutely, of course, every time. But instead of going after the source of this problem, which is plaguing not just you, but frankly, tens of millions of people. I mean, we're, we're at risk within a generation of having over 100 million people with diabetes in this country. We're all on the Titanic when it comes to so-called healthcare in the United States. And we're rearranging deck chairs. I want us to address the iceberg. Yeah. And I guess I'm curious then what you believe the solution is, because if we look at the past, you know, nicotine needed 
nicotine use disorder in order for warnings to be labeled and other steps starting to be taken, treatment to be covered for people who were already addicted. And so if you think it's not necessarily labeling it in the ICD or DSM and making it a health concern that then, you know, costs and finances have to be put towards treating people who have it and basically like creating stigma around the use of it, which happened with nicotine, right? And even alcohol to some degree. How do we then, you know, solve this problem? It's in, a toxin. In your way. It, it, yeah. It's, yeah. It, well, it's a toxin. Um, you know, we don't, we don't call lead poisoning lead disease, right? Because it's not normal for human beings to be exposed to a whole bunch of lead. It's poison. And there's all sorts of appropriate policy and legislation and standards and regulation directed at that issue. And you could argue much the same is true of tobacco, right? I mean, smoking per se is not a disease, but smoking causes all of these diseases because it's a poison and the regulations are attached to it being a poison. So essentially, willfully addictive food elements are intoxicating in a bad way. They are toxins. And we attach regulations to environmental toxins all the time. So it can cause disease. Disease is when human physiology is disrupted. It's no longer working normally. But again, I, my, my big worry is if, if, you know, when, when we rush to label anything that goes wrong with the human body as the fault of the human body, it's a diseased body. It directs all of our resources to treatment of the individual and colossal inattention to the root causes of the problem. We see this again and again and again. Obesity could be the, the best example of it, but, but many others. And, and frankly, it's one of the reasons why, if you look carefully at all of the verbiage addressing these issues, those most inclined to label conditions of disease are those who profit from them being diseases. And those are the entities causing the problem and the entities treating the problem. They're always in line to support, absolutely, it's a disease. It, it did not surprise me when the American Medical Association stepped up and said, we're tired of obesity bias. So the remedy we've come up with is let's call it a disease. So it gets the respect it deserves. Frankly, it didn't fix obesity bias, right? We still have that problem. I don't think it's gotten any better. What did it do? It invited pharmacotherapy for obesity. It invited bariatric surgery for more patients. It invited bariatric surgery for adolescents. That's what it, it did the predictable thing. More money going to the house of medicine to treat this thing, which society could fix at its origins if it chose to do so. So that's my worry. I think it's a very rational worry. And again, I'm not trying to be controversial here. I'm just calling it like I see it. These are examples in the real world where when we call something a disease, we throw drugs and surgery at it and we ignore the origins of the problem, which means that it affects everybody and it roils all of society and it, it devastates the economy and, and it ruins people's lives. I don't want that to happen here. So these are toxins. Willfully addictive, hyperpalatable junk foods are engineered toxins, and they can be regulated like arsenic and cyanide and lead and mercury, and for that matter, trans fat, which we didn't realize initially was a toxin, but when we realized it was, we had all sorts of policies enacted to get it out of the food supply. That's what needs to happen here. And that's not the only thing that needs to happen. While we're waiting, we need to take the best possible care we can of individuals. I'm not opposed to the use of drugs like Ozempic. I, I think some people can really benefit from them, but we should not be putting all our eggs in that basket. We should not. And what are we going to say to children? You know, we're going to do nothing to prevent you from succumbing to all the bad stuff your parents had. Just wait, grow up. You too can get fat. 
uh, get diabetes and all the rest, and then we'll put you on injectable pharmacotherapy for the rest of your lives too. Just get in line. You know, what, what, what does that say about us as a society? It's terrible. I don't think what you're saying is controversial in that just how you see it is just so much bigger, right? So, so many of us come at it from our specific lens, right? So we're clinicians. We have been mental health and addiction clinicians for decades, right? And then we come into this area of food addiction and we're like, oh my gosh, this is very similar to nicotine. This is very similar to caffeine. This is very similar to alcohol. And the only way that the people can get help covering costs to get treatment is to have insurance cover it, which means, right? Which, which by the way, is all part of the same collusion, right? So Mm -hmm. we need to label it a disease so that it can be reimbursed by third-party payers, which benefits both those causing the problem and those treating the problem and the third-party payers and who loses our patients every time. So, I mean, to be clear, I am a clinician too. I, I no longer see patients, but 30 years in the trenches. And, you know, as an internist, I took care of a lot of people with a lot of different addictions, including food, but everything else. And, and you know, many of my patients had the ravages of, of years of smoking, the ravages of alcoholism, the ravages of other drug addictions. And I did everything in my power to treat them as effectively and holistically and compassionately as I possibly could. But I'm also trained in public health and epidemiology and looking at patterns at the population level. And if I have any distinction relative to my colleagues, I am prone to see the whole forest. You know, Mm -hmm. it's actually, we all know the expression missing the forest for the trees. It's quite a common thing among elite academics. Their expertise is so rarefied, it kind of puts you in this tunnel. Yes. And you see inside the tunnel better than anybody else in the universe, but you can't see anything outside the tunnel. I've never been that. I've always tended to see the big picture. So even, frankly, when I was doing my internal medicine training, what led me to do a second residency in preventive medicine, public health was this. I recognized that I was being trained to be one of the king's horses and one of the king's men. You know, in other words, eight out of 10 patients in hospital beds had horrible things we were never going to fully fix that never needed to happen in the first place. We were going to patch them up as best we could, but you can't uncrack Humpty Dumpty shell. You can prevent the fall off the wall. You can prevent the next person from falling. You can lower the wall. You can put a seatbelt on the wall. You can put cushions at the base. I mean, do something to prevent the next person from falling off. And I said, I cannot spend the rest of my life patching up cracked eggshells were, you know, we're never going to be able to unscramble. I, I am nothing they've taught me in all of internal medicine is enough to restore complete vitality. The only way to do that is to preserve it in the first place. And I, I, I've got to be involved in that. So I did a second residency. And so my career has been focused in equal parts on caring for individuals who have all this stuff. And I totally relate to exactly what you're talking about as clinicians. I, I know that intimacy, but also looking for the patterns at the population level and saying, what is the origin of this problem? Why are so many people succumbing to this? And how do we make this better for the next generation so they don't have the same lousy remedies we have now, which is get the horrible disease and then get the inconvenient treatment for it, right? I mean, if we can do better than that, let's do better than that. Yeah. I just appreciate you calling. I mean, I personally feel called out by it and I love it so much because it highlights my (laughs) bias of my belief that I had to play within the system, right? My belief that like, this is the system that in which I work in and it's my job to beat them at their own game. And you're saying, why are we even playing their game? Let's do healthcare versus state care. They they made the rules of the game and and guess what? You designed the rules of the game to make you win. 
Um, yeah. I, I've been arguing for years. I, I actually had an invitation many years ago when the AMA decided to declare in, in their infinite wisdom obesity a disease. I got an invitation from Nature, uh, you know, one of the premier uh, science journals, to write an opinion piece. So I thank you so much, and I, I did. And I said I vote no, and and it, these were all the reasons why. But you have to provide an alternative because you're right. We, we need if we're going to treat it. First of all, if we're going to respect it. We need to understand it. And then if we're going to treat it, we need to we need a code. You know, we need to send the insurance company something. I said, well, that's not a problem. It doesn't have to be a disease. I have never heard. Insurance companies deny everything. It's a knee-jerk reflex, right? Just denied. Um, you know, resuscitation, cardiac arrest, denied. Uh, you know, you, you you didn't seek pre-approval. Pre-approval? Are you you know? I mean, you often win the fight, but you have to fight the fight every time. So just denied, denied, denied. I'm not aware of insurance company denials for resuscitating a victim of drowning. Drowning is a legitimate medical condition. So I said we could code obesity accordingly. Drowning type A in water and all the appropriate treatments and DRGs and you know whatever you need. Drowning type B in hyperpalatable, ultra-processed junk where food ought to be and labor-saving technology where the consequences are not asphyxia and lungs filled with fluid, but are obesity, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, coronary disease, increased rates of cancer, sleep apnea, disabling arthritis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that is legitimate and all of that should be so the treatment for drowning in that so obesity as a form of drowning would have given us the icd codes we needed legitimized it medically and not given the big food the cover they currently have because you guys are drowning people you are the source of the problem we're sending lifeguards to clean up your mess we're putting signage on the beach to say no do not come in i mean we do the opposite with food that we do with the beach at the beach, if there's a riptide or sharks in the water or a massive swell, you get an honest sign that says, bad idea to swim today. You get the exact opposite with food. Take kids' breakfast cereal, right? I mean, some of the worst junk on the planet. I mean, more often than not, the first ingredient when they're honest about it is sugar. So it's not really cereal with added sugar. It's sugar with a little added cereal, which may or may not be whole grain cereal. And then what do they put on the front of the package? This is junk. Eat it at your own risk. This is candy but pretend it's breakfast by pouring milk over it? No, they don't put that on the front of the package. They put fortified with 11 essential vitamins and minerals, part of a complete breakfast. I mean, that is, I don't know how bluntly I'm allowed to speak on this podcast, but I'm just going to go for it. That go is a it. steaming load of bullshit. I mean, it's just horrible. Where is the outrage? I mean, that's just overt manipulation. It's just horrible, right? So, you know, if we were to treat the beach that way, There'd be a riptide, there'd be sharks, there'd be a massive swell. We put up a beach because we make money every time people swim that says, come on in, the water's fine. It's a lie. It's a lie. And I think we need to revolt. Hey, Food Junkies listeners. We're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Hey, Food Junkie listeners. Have you read the book, Food Junkies Recovery from Food Addiction yet? It all starts there. This is the book with the basic theory and clinical knowledge of food addiction. Read this book first to get the basics. Our Food Junkies podcast jumps off from the book and is the ongoing breathing version, ever growing and ever expanding. Our podcast introduces you to all the issues of food addiction and the who's who of food addiction today. 
And if we at the Food Junkies podcast have inspired you to action, either to quit sugar or some other triggering foods or behavior, and you need some extra support, then please join the free Facebook group, I'm Sweet Enough Sugar Free for Life. There you will find a community of people who come from all parts of the spectrum, from the new and just starting out, to the long timers who call themselves food addicts in recovery, to counselors ready to give back and help you. The Facebook group even offers free support Zoom groups. Basically, it's a great online living resource of food addiction to help you stay sugar-free for life. So please join us. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. I love your passion, Dr. Gas. It's like making me feel so like invigorated right now. And I'm like, I, I need to go change the world, like with policy somehow. We need to figure uh, that out. I, next, I, right? I've been trying for 40 years. You yeah. go, girl, you go, because uh, I'm getting tired. I imagine, I imagine for sure. So when we work with our clients who do struggle with the symptoms of food addiction, we use a term that you coined that I heard for the first time, culinary medicine, in order to relieve their cravings for more, also to help them break the cycle of cravings. They talk to us about never feeling full, experiencing that loss of control around food. And my question then is like, when do you think the world, rest of the world will catch on to that? Like, wow, this works very quickly for a lot of people, but even those who don't, wouldn't necessarily qualify for, you know, the, in the YFAS food addiction symptoms, but for them to experience what I also heard you call that taste bud rehab, which I loved. Thank you. So, so taste bud rehab is definitely mine. I, I, uh, and I, I forget exactly when I came up with that, but that, that one was me. I, I think you're giving me too much credit for culinary medicine. I, it's a widely used term. I use it. I, I may have been among the early users of it because I thought it made a lot of sense, but I, I, I'm pretty sure someone else came up with it. And people like David Eisenberg at Harvard come to mind who were in the vanguard of that effort. And I think it is becoming mainstream. I'm, I'm pleased to say we're really seeing a lot more. So, and maybe this is a promise of things to come. We're, we're in a phase right now where there's more and more attention to the ills of ultra-processed food. And we kind of have a trifecta to thank for that. We have Professor Carlos Montero at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, who came up with the NOVA classification that operationally defines ultra-processed food. We have Kevin Hall, a researcher at the NIH who, who has done metabolic ward studies, randomized trials where food is either ultra-processed or not, and proven that ultra-processing makes, makes people overeat 500 calories a day and consequently gain weight. And we have Michael Moss, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist who has written about the adverse effects of this and the, the, the nefarious intentions of big food being behind this in two books, Salt, Sugar, Fat, and Hooked. And in a New York Times Magazine cover story, The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food. So there's more and more attention to it. But for now, we still have business as usual. Big food gets to keep doing this. Big Pharma obviously is loving life at the moment because, you know, they basically have the greatest blockbuster drugs in history with the GLP-1s that are originally developed to treat type 2 diabetes and are, and are now being used routinely to treat obesity. So, hey, addictive food. Fantastic. We love it. It'll make everybody need our drugs. 
And again, you know, the CEO of Big Food and the CEO of Big Pharma are in a cigar smoke filled boardroom, you know, laughing it up, shaking hands and popping champagne corks. Uh, so, so that's the current situation. But even while all of that continues to roil within the more enlightened elements in, in medicine, there's a tremendous growing emphasis on culinary medicine. There are programs at more and more medical schools with the understanding that we cannot call biochemistry an education in nutrition, which is how it was when I went to medical school, right? We all got biochemistry. So we learned what various nutrients did in biochemical pathways. And then they sort of patted us on our heads and said, you know about nutrition now. We knew absolutely nothing of use to say to a patient. And so the modern model, and again, David Eisenberg comes to mind among those who've led this effort, uh, folks at the Culinary Institute of, of um, America and their Menus of Change program are involved and uh, a number of others, is culinary medicine education where medical students and residents actually are, they have cooking classes. They're, they're taught, here's how you make a wholesome, nutritious, economical, convenient meal for a family. And oh, by the way, you know, when you're tired post-call and you need to eat something, you can do this at home for yourself. So it's good for you. But now when you're talking to your patient about how do I eat well and how do I eat well on a budget, and you actually can answer their question as opposed to giving them a lecture on biochemistry, which will do nobody any good. So it's a movement in medical education. It's a movement in mid-career education. Again, the Culinary Institute of America sponsors programs for mid-career physicians and other health professionals who want to learn about cooking. So you know the teaching is in the kitchen. It's it's not about biochemical pathways. It's about ingredients and shopping and cooking. I think that's great. That's a beautiful thing. And then there is tremendous growth right now. Just as we're seeing this tremendous focus on GLP-1 drugs for obesity, we're also seeing a tremendous focus on food as medicine. That that's it's a buzzword, right? I mean, it's in the zeitgeist now. Everybody's talking about it. There's a whole new center at Tufts University focused on it. There was a White House conference that focused on the potential for food as medicine. The American Heart Association has partnered with the Rockefeller Foundation to launch a whole cascade of pilot studies to test the utility of food as medicine. And this is near and dear to my current efforts, where we work on measuring dietary quality and improving it. So. I think there's real potential there. So, so that whole space is growing and culinary medicine is a big movement and, and maybe it overtakes these problems and maybe it really, you know, it becomes a wave we can all ride and it helps us solve problems. In the meantime, taste bud rehab is a smaller concept and in, it's the idea that, okay, so if tolerance happens with sugar and salt, in other words, if the more I get, the more I need, can I reverse engineer that? And the answer is yes. And, and I know the answer is yes from the intimate perspective of clinical care, because I did this with countless patients over 30 years and family members for that matter. I also know it from the scientific literature because there's a literature to back it up. So stated bluntly, one of the most potent drivers of dietary preference, taste, is familiarity. Taste buds are adaptable little fellas. When they can't be with the foods they love, they learn to love the foods they're with. It's just like that. And, you know, biologically, we're all the same. And, you know, the, the three of us are very close cousins. Everybody, all the other members of the human family are related to us at one remove or another. We're, 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 we're all members of the extended human family. Biologically, we're the same kind of animal. You know, it's amazing how fractious the world is and how we, we find excuses for hating one another. We're all the same. I mean, you know, if we could just look past superficial differences, we would see we feel the same things. We care about the same things. We love people the same way. We suffer the same way. 
and and what a better world it would be if we could see through to our common humanity. We're we're the same. Well, it's certainly true with regard to taste buds. They perceive the same things. Our brains process those signals the same way. So why is it that Mexican babies grow up liking hot chilies and Indian babies grow up liking curries and Japanese babies grow up liking raw fish? And why is that? Why, Why such different than French babies grow up liking cheese and foie gras? I mean, what's going on? If our taste buds are the same, why don't we all like the same thing? Exposure familiarity with regard to food does not breed contempt. It breeds preference. And then we have the problem where, okay, so we we can take taste buds in a lot of different directions. In the U.S., we take them in the direction of ultra-processed junk food, copious additions of salt and sugar and food chemicals and artificial sweeteners and flavors and, and so forth. And so you come to prefer all of that. But it's not a fixed setting of your taste preference. It's malleable. It's adaptable. And you can reverse engineer it. So taste bud rehab is a process that generally would play out over a period of either weeks to maybe months, depending on how much you're trying to fix, where you say, look, it's going to be hard. You're used to eating fast food and junk food and lots of sugar, drinking soda 10 times a day. Now, we can't take all that away without you going completely bonzo. So let's dial it down. How about we focus on sugar first, since it's a huge problem. And instead of taking away the sweet stuff, your soda and your dessert, the stuff that is supposed to be sweet, that you want to be sweet, that you need to be sweet. How about we clean up all the added sugar and food you didn't know was sweet in the first place, like salad dressing and pasta sauce and bread and crackers and salty snacks, and we could keep going. There are absurd amounts of sugar added to things that aren't even sweet in our food supply. Why does that matter? Well, it's a stimulus to appetite. So it stimulates the ventromedial hypothalamus where the human appetite center resides. Whether you taste it or not, the chemical response is there. The neurosensory stimulus is there. It stimulates you to eat more and it contributes to tolerance. You're getting sugar even when you're not perceiving it. It's masked by other flavors. I'm saying this quantitatively to be explicitly true, not figurative. I'm not exaggerating. There is more added sugar per calories in many commercial marinara sauces than in just about anything in the dessert aisle. Because in the dessert aisle, the sugar is exposed. It's not masked by all these other flavors. When they put it into marinara sauce, they want it covered over by spices and salt and the taste of tomato. So you don't even register it's there. But you do eat more because it's there. And you buy a new jar sooner because it's there. So what I've done with my patients over the years is say, let's focus on stealth sugar because you won't really miss it. Let's clean up all that. Let's let's become food label literate. Let's find the alternative pasta sauce, salad dressing, bread, crackers, chips, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that doesn't have the junk that shouldn't be there in the first place, that costs about the same. Give it a taste. And if you say, yeah, sure, I could eat this, eat it instead. What we will have done is taking gram after gram after gram of sugar out of your daily diet before we ever even touched anything you registered as sweet. And it will start to wake your taste buds up out of their coma. And they'll start to perceive the sweetness in the things you're eating that are sweet. And they'll start to say little by little, actually, this is sweeter than it needs to be. And then the game is really afoot because now we can start dialing down the sweetness in those foods too. And the same thing works for salt. And the same thing works for food chemicals and automatic. So that's taste bud rehab. And does it take a little time? Yeah. Does it take a little effort? Yeah. I routinely point out to people, because in in the space of health and food, I I mean, we're we're such ninnies. You know, we expect everything. We we turn to fad diet offers. We want magical, instantaneous, and effortless. What worthwhile thing in life is magical, instantaneous, or effortless? I mean, 
Learning the alphabet was not magical, instantaneous, or effortless. It was an investment. We all made as kindergartners and first graders. And the result is we're literate for the rest of our lives. Small investment, massive return. It was painful at the time. Learning to ride a bike. I fell off multiple times, skinned my knees. It hurt. I cried. I got over it. You can ride a bike for the rest of your life. Eating well for the rest of your life is a gift of incredible reward, a gift that keeps on giving more years in life, more life in years, a gift you can share with everybody you care about. Unlike drugs and surgery, you can pay this one for it. It's a beautiful thing. Is it any great shock that to get there from here takes a little bit of time and a little bit of effort? So Taste Bud Rehab absolutely works. I think it can work for absolutely everybody. But you've got to understand it's a process. It's not a gimmick. You don't just flip a switch. No, I love that so much. It sounds so much very, like very familiar to us, that kind of harm reduction approach. And I think, you know, our listeners can appreciate that taste bud rehab. Really, we know 14 days, we get new taste buds about two weeks or so. That is like, probably going to be the beginning two weeks are going to be the toughest. But like you said, if you're doing it slowly, like, you know, they will be, you will keep getting new taste buds that appreciate the flavor of your food more real food. And and absolutely couldn't agree more. And, And then, you know, if ultimately it takes 12 weeks, what a small hill to climb to live in the promised land of better health vitality for the rest of your life. And to be able to share that with everybody you love. And Really important, and we, we haven't mentioned this. You know, I, I'm a physician, took care of patients. It was sort of a given that health was important, right? I, I think there's something we critically overlook in our society, and, and I can tell from our conversation, you're going to agree with me on this, health isn't really the prize. Living the life you want to live, being in control of your life, being able to make the choices that matter to you, that's the prize. Best quality of life is the prize. Health is in the service of that. The thing we, the mistake we make, We tend to talk about health as if it's at the end of a wagging finger. You should be. It's a moral imperative, right? You're a better person if you're healthy. You're a bad person if you're not healthy. That's wrong. You're the boss of you. No one else is the boss of you. The reason to care about being healthy is because healthy people have more fun. Other things being equal, healthy people have more fun. Well, then that becomes a critical consideration. We're going to talk to people about how they eat. They say, well, wait a minute. You're saying, you know, I should be healthy because my life gets better, but I like the stuff I eat. And if I'm going to like the stuff I eat less for the rest of my life, then, you know, maybe my life gets better in some ways, but worse in other ways. And it's a trade off. And OK, that person saying that they're making sense. But we have to be able to respond and say, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. If you go through this taste bud rehab process, you're actually going to come to love the food that loves you back. That is the sweet spot. Your taste buds change and start to reward you for eating real food. You're not going to eat it because you have to. You're going to prefer it. You're going to love it. I, I consider myself a foodie. I, I'm, I'm very fortunate. My, my wife's a brilliant cook, French, grew up in southern France. So I, I'm a lucky guy when it comes to matters of the kitchen. But I love good food. But it's, you know, I, I eat real food, mostly plants. And, you know, I just love the taste of those simple, fresh ingredients. The, the, the greatest cuisines in the world rely on simple, fresh ingredients expressing those flavors direct from nature. It's only taste buds that have been put into a modern coma that aren't responsive to that. So I point out, I I think you could say, all right, look, I want pleasure from good health. I hear you. That makes sense. Healthy people have more fun. I'm buying into that. But I also want pleasure from good food. Can I have both? And I would say, hell yeah. And in fact, let's look for the place where the sum of the two is the greatest. That's probably where you want to be. And and it, it wouldn't be exactly the same spot for everybody. 
There's some people who probably want to indulge more with food and are willing to pay, you know, some price, maybe being heavier, but they don't mind, or, you know, maybe needing to take medication for their blood pressure, but they'd rather take medication and cut back on the salt they love so much. Right. I mean, I, and I'm willing to negotiate with every patient. I'm not the boss of my patients. I'm the coach of my patients. My patients are the boss. It's my job to serve them. So you tell me what's the sweet spot for you. But I think most people who say, well, I, I'd love to maximize my vitality, years in life and life in years, not need medication and all that. I, I want that. And I want to like the food I eat. You can get there. You can have both. And and then, you know, the summit, you add those two things up and you're above the clouds and it's a sunny day every day. <laughs> it's just a great place to live. I so enjoy that that is like how you have worked with patients in the past and and probably even to this day, like carry that forward, you know, because a couple of things, it made me think of um, Michael Easter wrote a book called The Comfort Crisis, which I think is an amazing book talking about the very thing you said, like we're all a bunch of ninnies. We all live in, you know, environment controlled um, or temperature controlled environments. And like, we don't have to go like hunt for our food anymore. I mean, my husband goes and hunts and he rarely actually gets anything, you know, like you get so many weeks out of the season to get something. It's, it's, you know? it's hard work. It yeah. is hard work. It is hard work. And so I just, every, you know, so for anybody listening, if you want to know more about that, the comfort crisis, Michael Easter. But I also think that, you know, like you were saying, this whole idea of like autonomy, that meeting our clients where they're at and saying, how can I marry those two together and have this quality of life? So I am living the life I want to lead. And I think that leads me right into my next kind of question for you, because on one hand, I'm really grateful for these kind of quote unquote fad diets that have popped up because it's almost like a grassroots movement. Somebody along the line has identified, listen, there's something going on with our food supply. We need to do something different, right? So we've got paleo this and pescatarian that and whole 30 and keto and carnivore and, you know, whatever it might be. And so I think like the intention behind it um, maybe was something really good, but I think the impact has turned out to make it very moralized, right? Where we've got the extremes yelling at the other extremes and whatever it might be. But through all of it, there's continued to be an emphasis. You know, I think like there's those steady voices where there's this emphasis on like, you know, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, you know, plain water, dairy, no dairy, seeds, no seeds, eggs, whatever it might be. And I'm just wondering if you can kind of talk about like, how is it possible or even why has that message kind of persisted with all of this like outside really loud noise going on? Okay. Well, so there's a lot packed in there. And, and I have to say, Molly, you, you have a much more congenial view of fad diets than I do. I, you know, I, there's a formula. I actually had invitations over the years to write fad diet books. And one of my books, I, I'm, I'm a bit ashamed of it. it. It actually had legitimate science, but the publisher twisted my arm to put it in a three-phase format. And it's the only, I've written 19 books. I'm proud of them all except that one. But I declined when it, when it was overtly, you know, catch the low carb. We tell people how to have a low carb. I said, no, it, you know, cut all plants are carbohydrate. It's just the whole concept is misguided. It's silly. But you can see the temptation, right? And, um, you know, I'm tempted to quote Bertrand Russell here, who said the whole thing wrong with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so sure and wiser people so full of doubts. Now, I would add to Russell's list, fools, fanatics, and hucksters. And I, I, so my view of fad diets is most people writing knew they were nonsense, but they knew the formula. Basically, promise the moon and stars, make it effortless and instantaneous. 
imply that there's a conspiracy where nobody but you is willing to tell the public the truth. Everything you thought you knew up until this morning was wrong. Listen to me. I am the nutrition messiah. I'm here to deliver the information no one else will give you. I mean, it's, you know, immediately on the bestseller list. But the results, you know, everybody buys the book, goes on this highly restrictive cockamamie diet, loses weight in the short term, and then gains it all back. Thank goodness. And, and that, by the way, that, that's been a travesty because we have been living and dying on what we could call a diet of unintended consequences, a diet of dieting as opposed to eating well for a lifetime. We've been doing this for decades. And if anybody thinks that any of the current diets is a good idea, they should ask the obvious question. Where are all the thin people? These are supposed to be about weight loss. Where the heck are all the thin people? Over 70% of adults in the United States are overweight or obese, 70%. It's not just some. It's not just a lot. It's a landslide majority. Almost all of us are subject to overweight or obesity, despite having had how many fad diets over the past 50 years? A million? A gazillion? I mean, I don't know. Pick a number. Almost no number would be too many. And it's not even that we just keep getting new fad diets. We get Old fad diets renamed because the authors and the publishers and the media and everybody who profits from this, and oh, by the way, money again, lots of profits being made from all this nonsense. They know that our attention spans are short. They know that we've forgotten that we all tried keto before. The Atkins diet was a three-phase diet. Phase one was when you lost all the weight, and then you moderated your diet in phase two, and then you achieved a more sustainable diet in phase three, but oops a daisy in phase three, you start to gain the weight back. So you have to go back and do phase one again. What was phase one? Ketogenic diet. Not just kind of sort of ketogenic. In the book, it says this is the ketogenic phase. So if the ketogenic diet were going to save all of us, how come it didn't work in the 1970s when Robert Atkins first introduced it? How come it didn't work in the 1990s when he reintroduced it again as the new diet revolution? The only thing that changed was he inserted new in the title? <laughs> I don't think anything else. I have copies of both. And I think they're the same, except for that. And here it is again, different name. So I, I think actually that fad diets are a nefarious industry. And I think there's essentially collusion between the authors, many of whom are hucksters, some are probably fools, and some are fanatics, and the publishers and the media. And you know, they're all part of the same problem. Thank goodness, through all of that, some truths are so incontrovertible that we latch on to them anyway. And I think really the question you're asking, Molly, is how do we ever hear the signal above the noise? There is so damn much noise. But the volume of studies that show that eating more whole plants is good for human beings is so incredibly overwhelming that it produces a signal that's audible anyway. So you can debate all sorts of things about diet, but really, really difficult to say it doesn't matter if you eat any vegetables. Doesn't matter if you eat any fruits, doesn't matter if you eat any legumes or nuts or seeds. You know, just incredibly consistent literature, like a drumbeat in the background, just boom, boom, truth, 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 truth. And that truth, that steady drumbeat, that that percussive drumbeat of truth across studies of, of every conceivable methodology and diverse populations and, and decades and timelines, it keeps going even as the you know, the flavor of the day in fad diets is low glycemic or gluten-free or low-carb or low-fat or low-sirtuin or low-lectin or name your poison or the grapefruit diet or the cabbage soup diet or, the, you know, any other silly cockamamie restrictive diet that, that people can do. So the, the truth, because it 
is truth because it needs evidence. It is, it's pertinacious. It doesn't go away. It's not a flash in the pan. You don't hear about it just once. It just keeps coming back. So I think you could argue that we get all these different buckshot messages about different fad diets and they capture our imagination and we're willing to be silly and say, okay, this is the one that, you know, the, the first 999,999 didn't save me, but the millionth one is going to, this, this one's going to do it for me. That's incredibly gullible and silly, but we do that. But even while you're trying this one and then the next one and then the next one, that drumbeat persists. Real food, mostly plants. Real food, mostly plants. And we have Michael Pollan, of course, to thank for that pithy expression of it all. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So that message doesn't go away. And it's, I don't think it's nearly as loud as the noise. It's not as sexy as the noise. It's not as captivating as the noise, but it's far more relentless than the noise because the noise keeps coming in a variety of different flavors. You know, it's not as if the people who want you to do keto and the people who want you to do lectin-free or low glycemia, you know, they're not all on the same team. They're all on their own team. They just want to sell a, a, you know, a whole bunch of books and make a whole lot of money. The truth is a team. It's its own team. And everybody who cares about the truth is on that team, right? So I don't want the truth to be on my team. I want to be on the truth's team. And so there are a lot of people, a lot of honest people who are doing that work. So it's quieter, but it never goes away. And, and I think that's what you're referring to. And thank goodness for that, because at least a little bit of truth manages to be perceivable above the incredible amounts of noise we live in. Yes, I appreciate that messaging so much. And we hear some of the same in our space, you know, with the therapist guru, right? That's going to fix you. And it's like, no, you are your guru. You have all of this information and you figure out what works for you and what you will do on a regular basis that will get you to the place where you want to be. And so if I am someone on this journey right now, and I know you have a lot of books, so I'm going to ask you if what is the book I should start with or the one you would recommend the most? Wow. Well, for all the different things we've been talking about, the, the, the one that best covers that is this one, which is also really good for holding a door open if it's a very windy day. It's called The Truth About Food. It was a brain dump. I mean, I, it, I sort of consider it my magnum opus uh, because it was everything I know and how I know it, and why I know it, and why I trust what I trust, and and all that. And then I joke in the book. So it's a, it's a massive book. It's a two hundred thousand word book. Partly because I needed a good editor, I didn't have, but um, but mostly because there was a lot to say. And and it wasn't the truth about food because the truth about food is seven words long. And Michael Pollan nailed it. I, mean, I can't really improve on that. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So in the book, I say. This is a 200,000 word book. This should be a seven word book. And the seven words should be completely plagiarized. <laughs> so what are the other 199,993 words? They're the reasons why it's so hard to see the truth. So it's all this stuff we've been talking about. Who profits from the misinformation? Why so much noise? Why can't we see the simple truth? Why don't we value eating well the way we should? You know, Why don't we understand the value proposition that it's not about doing what you're supposed to do. It's about having a better life. You know, how how is big medicine in the mix? How is big food in the mix? How is big pharma in the mix? What other industries are in this? Where do all these fad diets come from? Which of these have kernels of truth that might be worth something? Like, for example, you know, a focus on the glycemic index and load is very worthwhile, but a low glycemic diet can be very misleading because then people, you know, give up carrots, for example. So it, I like that book a lot. I mean, it basically, it, it relieved a burden because I was just carrying around all this turmoil and passion and information. I just put it all in the book. 
if you don't want to do that much reading, then I did a really nice book with my friend Mark Bittman. It's much smaller. <laughs> and that's called How to Eat. And, and Mark and I, we basically sequestered ourselves in, in his man cave for uh, three days. And we, we just we just batted questions back and forth. Mostly he asked me questions and I answered, but every now and then, I mean, he's, you know, when it came to food systems and, and the farm bill and all, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's just, he's an encyclopedia. So when it was my turn, I asked him questions and we just talked for three days and we recorded all of it. And then we had it all transcribed. And then we spent a few months editing it, editing it down, but it, it's just a conversation. I mean, it's, it's what I like about how to eat. Uh, and the idea is, you know, any question you might have about that we'll get into it here and just simple clear truths it's like pulling up a chair to you know the breakfast table and say hey i, I got a question for you and i mean the book reads like that so it's fun so so i i would say one of those two and then you know as clinicians the you know really the most scholarly of of my offerings is nutrition and clinical practice we've done four editions of that textbook so if there are other clinicians listening in that has, you know, detailed, richly uh, cited uh, material. It's, you know, it's another very big book, uh, close to 900 pages, you know, chapters on all the different conditions and the relevance of food as medicine to all those different conditions. And then because I was a primary care doc for, for you know, 30 years and because I, I wrote the first edition by myself when I was seeing patients, I thought, you know, I, I, I could call in a lot of expert colleagues to help me. But the whole idea here is that one clinician ought to be able to use this information. And I think that the surest way to make sure that's possible is that one clinician thinking about this from the perspective of the clinical trenches writing. Because, you know, I'm asking other people to get their arms around all this. I need to do the hard job of getting my arms around it first and distilling each chapter down into. And so when you're in the room with a patient and have almost no time, here's something productive you can do. So it's written that way. So I'm proud of that one too. So those would be some of the suggestions. And and actually, Molly, say again the name of the book you mentioned because I haven't read that one. The uh, Comfort Crisis, Michael Easter. Comfort Crisis. Okay, mm-hmm. thank he you. Also, Dan. just wrote a new one too, Scarcity Brain, which is good as well. But I would say the Comfort Crisis start there. Comfort Crisis. Okay, good. Not not that I you know my my to read list always grows by three books every time I read one. So, right. I just, I, you know, I'm like Sisyphus. I, I, I never catch up, but still sounds like a good, good tip. It's good to have goals, writing. right? Uh, yes. <laughs> and I need to eat well to live long enough to read all the books I'm supposed to read. That's it. And to keep your eyes, right? Like, well, so you can do that. Okay. So we've definitely kept you for well over an hour at this point. We just have one last question. We like to ask everybody some version of our signature question. So I'm going to change it up a bit for you, Dr. Katz. And I'm wondering if you were to tell a younger version of yourself, something about food, nutrition, public policy, what might that be? Wow. Well, I I guess as a younger person, I was more trusting and it probably took me a while to work up a good head of outrage. So I, you know, I, I get, and, and this is a little bit sad. It, you know, it's funny because young people often visit with me to seek career advice and, and they'll ask me that question. You know, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? And I'd say nothing. I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. And I don't want you to know now what I didn't know then because you're going to be much more idealistic and impassioned and, and you're going to believe you can make a difference. One of the things you learn over time is how hard it is to make a difference. Uh, so it's a little sad, this answer, but I, I think I would have skipped all the intermediate steps and gone straight to outrage. You know, basically, the, there's a lot of corruption. There is a, a, a willingness 
to mortgage the future health of our children for the sake of corporate profit. And while it might seem the stuff of, you know, Hollywood morbid fantasy, it's real. And so I think when you see something outrageous, you should be outraged. And, you know, I think I might have gotten outraged a little earlier and and I maybe would have been more involved in, in activism as a result of that. Frankly, the, the other thing, and we didn't talk about this, but if you give me just one more minute, I want to say this. You know, we've talked a lot about caring for, for our fellow humans, which is a very high calling. But I have to say that my perspective over the years has shifted. So as a physician, that was what my whole career was about. But we are ruining the planet. And you know, I, so I look at, at diet through three lenses now. I look at what are the direct human health effects what does it mean for how we treat our fellow creatures? Because I do not think wanton cruelty should be on the menu. And these concentrated animal feeding organizations, CAFOs, you know, I mean, the conditions are horrible. There's abuse, there's cruelty, it's just terrible. And what are we doing to the planet? Because I don't like this planet. It's, it's among my favorite planets. We need this planet, right? And I've got kids and maybe my kids will have kids and, you know, we're going to need this planet for a long time uh, and we're destroying it. So I think one of the things I, I would have said to, to my young self is be an environmental activist. Don't, don't wait until the evidence is so overwhelming that we're ruining the planet to get involved. Get involved now when maybe you could still debate it a little bit, but the writing's on the wall. And if I had my whole career to do over again, I, you know, I really do think what we're doing to the planet is sort of the signature issue of our time because that, you know, we, we don't get a mulligan for that. I mean, almost everything else, there's something we can do, but you know, when the planet's uninhabitable, we're toast. I, I would have focused more on that. I, I'm, I'm proud to say I, I have five kids. My youngest um, is an engineer, and he's very focused on those issues. He's you know, sequestering carbon and saying, go, Gabe. <laughs> Somebody's got to save us from ourselves. So there's a couple of things I, 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 I wish had figured in, in sort of my early career planning. But I wouldn't have changed too much, to be honest. Oh, well, it's been such a pleasure to have you here. And and I'm just so grateful that you gave us all of this extra time and you were willing to be so candid with us because I think that's, I mean, again, like I truly mean it. Like I feel called out and I'm so happy for it because that's the only mm. way I can adjust, right? Yeah. That I can grow. We're going to have well, like an hour conversation. I know after this. I know. <laughs> Well, well, it, listen, you two have been absolutely lovely and uh, and you let me rant and I appreciate that very much. And, you know, message is only useful if people hear it and, and, and you're giving me the voice today. And so I, I thank you. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so thank much you for so being much. here. Take good care. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.